Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcast. I am your host, Nate, lost in time and space, and I'm joined with this evening. I'm the man from Lang, host of the Whisper in Darkness YouTube channel. And I'm Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And today we are here to take a look at the newest release for Call of Cthulhu, Regency Cthulhu. We were provided a review copy from Chaosium, so thank you very much to Chaosium for providing that copy to us for the purposes of this review. Review. I was thinking, so if you're at a game store or a bookstore, is this a book that would have grabbed your attention initially just from the cover, just from the title, and just from the idea of mixing Cthulhu and the Regency period? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember they posted something about this on Twitter. They just posted like they were doing this, and then I saw Jane Austen, and I was like, oh, I'm totally sold. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up, my mom was a huge Jane Austen fan. A lot of people were, yeah. Yeah, so it's very much a part of, like, my childhood, too. And, you know, I love Call of Cthulhu, so just, like, the thought of combining the two just sounds like a lot of fun to me. What about you, man, from Lang? No. <laughs> I am not a fan of Jane Austen. I was not a fan of Jane Austen. When I studied uh, the books in university, and I have uh, generally stayed away from it ever since. It caught my attention. I was more curious than anything. Like, if I saw this at the at the game store, I would pick up the book and be like, oh, well, this is weird. And then try to flip through it, you know, to see if it catches my eye. Because I have kind of an in-between feeling of Jane Austen between you guys, because... I do like the time period and the movies, and my wife watches, you know, uh, that upstairs, downstairs show uh, at Downton Abbey, which I guess has some elements. It's not within that period, but it has some elements of the classes system and all that. I do enjoy that. I think it's intriguing, but I just can't wrap my head around mixing that with Cthulhu. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think for me, it would be more of a, let me flip through this and see if it catches my attention. And then if it does, I would buy it. And if not, then, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get that first thought because I think that's this particular theme is one that might separate people, you know, like on based on the theme itself, like people might have completely opposing ideas as to whether it's something that would interest them more than other stuff, I think, related to Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu. I think when a lot of people think of this sort of time era, they usually think like 30 or 40 years into the future, like in the, into the Victorian era. And we're thinking like, you know, like in the full steam of the industrial revolution, but this is like right before all that stuff happens. So it's, it's an interesting time period. Yeah. What, what is the Regency period for those listening who have no idea what, what we're talking about, what Jane Austen is and what Regency is? So the the Regency period takes place in the early 19th century uh, during the aftermath of the Regency Act of 1811, where King George III was declared unfit to rule and his son was made Prince Regent of England. It goes through about, I think it's a 23rd six years or something like that until when Victoria is crowned queen of England. And that's when the Victorian era happens. So it's like, you know, you see like war of 1812, Napoleon, it's that, it's that era of time. Yeah. The Napoleon wars. I, I'm glad the book kind of outlines exactly what the Regency period is. And 
there are some conflicting ideas as to the exact time frame. Because you said it was 22, some like 20-something years. And the book mentions that some people think it's that, but officially the Regency area is only an 11-year period. What this Call of Cthulhu um, setting strives to encompass is the broader time period that you mentioned, because the people didn't just change how how the society worked and how it acted just because, you know, just in an 11-year period. So the period is actually much longer in terms of the theme and, and the actual setting. Yeah, the, the book encompasses about like 150 years of history throughout it. It, it goes into a lot of like the the 18th century and then it sort of delves into like everything pretty much pre-victoria era it's it's nice that it gives you that time range because it allows you to you know potentially create like a regency cthulhu game that's set in like the american revolution or you know set in the war of 1812 or something like that if that's what you wanted to do which, yeah which i agree it's great that they give you the history because it, it was hard for me to wrap my head around the exact like theme because like you said i tend to mix Regency and Victorian eras as well. And there is a difference. And I'm glad that the book gives you a lot of information regarding that. The Regency, one one thing that the Regency era shares with what the traditional Call of Cthulhu setting has, that there's a lot of wealth and a lot of poverty. The classes are very separated. There's almost a non-existent middle class. But in the 1920s and 30s, it was because of alcohol. That is how people became rich. But in the Regency era, it was caused by the many wars and the colonialism that England was involved in. So it's distinctly different in that upper classes didn't really socialize with lower class individuals. Whereas 1920s and 30s, they did socialize with each other, but there still was a big split between the upper and the lower classes. And and the book takes a lot of inspiration from Jane Austen's writing too. You know, it's it's right there on the cover. You know, there's a lot of theming around, you know, romance and courtship and going to fancy balls and, you know, that sort of social aspect of Call of Cthulhu, which is not for everyone, admittedly. Let's start with just the overall kind of meta. So like the editing and the art and things like that. So overall, um, what were what were your initial thoughts on the layout and the editing and the artwork in the book? I uh, quite liked the layout of the book. I found it to, to be very easy to read. You know, generally there'd be, they would discuss a topic and then if there was some uh, something they needed to elaborate on, uh, for example, uh, there's a section about uh, LGBTQ characters. There's a section about um, romance and and sex in the Regency era, and they've sort of taken those out and and put them in their own little uh, sections. So it's it's I found it pretty easy to read, and the layout made sense. You know, the the first part covers basically the history. In case you're not familiar with the uh, with the era, and then it goes into the mechanics behind the game and uh, changes up the characters a little bit uh, as is required, since uh, certain skills don't exist during the Regency era. So they uh, they make the necessary adjustments, and then they go in and provide a a sample town that uh, you can use in your own games, which is uh, which has been fleshed out with uh, a lot of npcs that you can uh, that you can use so i i didn't have any trouble with the uh, the layout whatsoever what about you Nate? yeah i agree and on top of that i think the art in the book is really great 
there's a lot of really great full page pieces throughout the book that really bring aspects of the Regency era to life and kind of give little hints of mythos happenings throughout, which I think is really cool. And it's nice that they provide portraits for all the NPCs. In all the of them. Pretty, uh, yeah, I think it is all of all them. All of them. Yeah, which is super cool and rare for a Cthulhu book. There's a lot here, and it's really nicely laid out. And I like I like that they have the appendices in the back of the book as well that um, you know just give you quick access to various information you might need. Or even just organizing all the handouts into one section is really nice, too. Man, I swear, I for my notes... I wrote exactly what you just said. I mean, you took it out of my mouth. <laughs> so I agree with you. I love that they have appendices that include the maps and handouts and keeper maps and player maps. They have both, which is sometimes a gripe that we have with certain um, scenarios or adventures or whatever, you know, that they only include the keeper maps and no player maps. <laughs> this one includes both. One thing I'll say about that, too, specifically, is that they put the keeper maps in the scenario sections and they put the player maps in the back of the book, which is a really nice touch. You know, they didn't some some scenarios will put it like in the back of the scenario, but putting them all in the back of the book in general just makes it so much easier to print them all out. Overall, the editing is well done. I love the layout of like uh, Man from Lang was saying, you know, the little mini sections on like LGBT, the you know race in that time period and things like that, they're laid out in just a little section that's easy to find, easy to digest. It's great. It's really concise and not, doesn't overstay its welcome. I love that they include the handouts. Like you said, full-page art handouts that have a lot of flavor to them. Gives them, uh, especially the one that gives them, the players an introduction to the Regency era. It's a one-pager. So, like, if you're someone like me that kind of confuses the era and isn't fully wrapped, like, my head's not fully wrapped around everything about it, they have a one-pager that you hand to your players before you start playing a campaign, and it summarizes everything and exactly what they can expect from the era, which is a really nice touch. I'm so glad they did that. The final thing was the art. I, uh, I agree. It's mostly fantastic. I love the art in this book. It's... I tend to be critical of Call of Cthulhu art because I've been spoiled by by Delta Green, but this one actually really, uh, like you said, those nice little hidden Easter eggs and you know Lovecraftian little touches. Where if you look at a piece of art initially, it seems like just another standard Regency era art, um, but if you look closely, you'll catch some little things. That I think that's a nice touch too. So overall, really good, really good art. Yeah, so you had, you had mentioned about how you, you liked how all the player handouts and stuff were, were organized in the back of the book. I also quite like how they walk you through the character creation process in this book as well. You know, if this is your first book as a new keeper and you want to, like, play in this setting because it, it interests you for some reason, it still gives you all the necessary information that you can provide for your players. You know, you were saying with that handout earlier as well. Um... I like that they added a new mechanic um, called uh, reputation, which I found to be pretty interesting. Um, I was curious what your guys' thoughts about uh, reputation was. I think it uh, makes a lot of sense uh, given the setting that uh, they are trying to portray in the book. I feel sometimes as though the book leans a little too heavily into Jane Austen and 
not enough sometimes into the into the Cthulhu mythos. But I didn't I didn't really have a, a problem with reputation. I don't know how often it would come into play if I was running a game like that, because I think it's something that it sort of describes the relationship between, say, the players and some of the or the players, you know, between the players as well as the players and some of the maybe the major NPCs. But I find that, you know, besides, you know, unless you're dealing with, you know, uh, the most aristocratic of cultists, cultists don't really care about reputation all that much. So I don't know how often it would come into play. I, I don't know if I agree with you, but I agree with you on a, another point that you touched on uh, because I wrote that in my notes too. But just to rewind a little bit to the reputation part, I I really, really like the addition of reputation. I think that single mechanic makes a huge difference in really bringing out the flavor of the setting. I think it's extremely important. The way the book has detailed the importance of reputation and the classes system, the book talks about when you go to the store, um, generally people who are you know, of higher status can go and just buy stuff on their credit. And shopkeepers, you know, because they're lower status, it's hard for them to collect if, if the person just doesn't offer to pay. Like it's it's a faux pas to ask them to pay for, you know, the the bill that they've added up over the last several weeks or whatever. So uh, the shopkeepers can then, the only way that they can really ask for money or collect is say, I can't sell you anything else on credit until you pay the other stuff. And that can really hurt your reputation. This particular era and this particular setting creates a, a much more important role for the social dynamics between your interactions with other NPCs and even other PCs. And I think that's where some people may find it difficult to run because it does get really, really complex in terms of your interactions with other people in the town and city and just literally everyone. It, it is optional. And the book advises that you really only apply reputation to characters that are of like a higher social class. You know, you're not really so the book doesn't intend you to apply it to like servants and you know, people of a lower class, but I think I agree with Vase. I quite like the reputation mechanic for what it is. I, I think it's an interesting dial that keepers have access to in this particular setting because it, it is really trying to lean into that social kind of intrigue more than it is like supernatural horror. And I think a mechanic like this really goes a long way in making that feel distinct from other settings. Well, I do, I do, I do think that the mechanic itself is solid, but my issue is that I mean, if you want to run this type of game where you are heavily focused on social interaction between the the players and the NPCs and the social dynamics between them, and really emphasize, you know, the class distinctions between the aristocrats and the gentry and the and the laborers and stuff like that. I think this is an excellent book if that is the type of game you want to run. But if you want to run like a Cthulhu game, like the type of Cthulhu game that I want to run, I don't really see a place for it in in the type of game that I that I would be interested in running. Yeah, and that's the other point you made that I was going to come back to because I actually 100% agree with you on that on that portion of it because 
I do think that the biggest failure of the book, and not to say the book is a failure, but one thing that they probably could have done better is give more information, especially for newer keepers, on how to combine the two, how to incorporate the Regency period with Cthulhu. It does a great job of explaining the Regency period, coming up with the mechanic for dealing with the social interactions, talking about the differences between the classes and the you know, social interaction and all that stuff. But it, what it doesn't do and it kind of leaves on the table is exactly what you said, which is how to incorporate, how to combine the two to make it an interesting and seamless experience. Because here you have some people that are going to a ball, they're courting, you know, they're courting a lady and all this stuff. When another guy challenges him to a duel, so on and so on and so forth. But where in that can you throw in Cthulhu and make it feel like it like it fits? And I think it, this book doesn't really do a good enough job of really detailing how to how to easily combine the two. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I have the same thing in my notes as well. Is that yeah, I I agree that the the book doesn't and I have a theory for this which I'll 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 say when we go into our overall thoughts, but it's tough because like I I see why they would want to not necessarily provide like all the mythos stuff, if the game is meant to be more focused on mystery and sort of the social intrigue aspects of Lovecraftian stories. Like, I, I know that they've mentioned multiple times that not every Cthulhu game needs, or not every Call of Cthulhu game needs to be about the mythos, but I think a large portion of players that play this game, that's the big draw. So... I think more more so than other settings, this one I think will be very polarizing for players because you either really like that sort of stuff or you really couldn't give it the time of day. Right, but if you... I, I agree with you, uh, but if you're someone who is like, oh, Regency, I'm not super familiar with it. Let's see what it, this is all about. And then you you can wrap your head around the, the period because they do, again, a really good job of explaining that. But then you're like, well, okay, so what can I want to write my own adventures? But in this period, like, well, how can I make it fit and not feel forced and not feel like, okay, this just came out of left field and just doesn't feel like it fits. I totally agree. And like I said, I have a theory that I will um, that I'll mention when we go into our overall thoughts. And I, I even have a couple suggestions for that too. I, I think. One suggestion, if you want to include the mythos in the Regency era, is look to stories like the Dunwich Horror or the Rats in the Walls. I think those are two good examples um, for, like, straight Lovecraftian sort of stuff. And then maybe even look into, like, haunted house stories or, you know, look into, like, spiritualism and that sort of stuff, those sorts of movements going on during that time. I think, like, those sorts of um, aspects of that of that era are are good for for inspiration but yeah the the book just really doesn't touch on any of that and it's yeah they, they throw you like some like you said they, they throw you some bones in terms of hidden easter eggs so like not just in the artwork but when when you mentioned the timeline they have they i think it's like seven pages or eight pages long the timeline of events within the era and it covers like a hundred year period or whatever and if, you, if you're looking through that timeline, they throw little tidbits that you may not catch, to be honest. But 
they, they'll throw in like, this year there was a strange occurrence. So atmospheric disturbances caused by Mount Tambora volcano erupting in Indonesia lead to the year without a summer. And then they just leave it at that. And it's like, okay, why did they put this in the timeline about atmospheric disturbances and they caused the year without a summer? But then you realize, oh, this is them kind of throwing you a bone of maybe this is something that can spark your imagination as to there's a reason... Uh, cosmic horror reason for this atmospheric disturbance to happen you know but they don't detail it and they don't like throw more at you on that they expect you i think an advanced keeper would catch on to that and be like oh this this is great i can write a full adventure about this but a new keeper would read through that and go okay that was weird but (laughs) they won't even they may not even catch that that's supposed to be like you know seeds for adventures and things like that you know yeah and and I, I would be, I wouldn't be so disappointed by it if they hadn't done it in so many of other of their campaign settings, and they've done like such a good job in those other books of giving you like good solid inspiration. Like I was looking through Wicked Berlin, and that has like a three page, you know, it's not much, but it gives you like five to six different bullet points and kind of gives you like a couple paragraphs about each and how to like you know take a basic premise and go from there. Whereas this, this just doesn't have much in the way of anything. And it's all kind of scattered throughout the book. And it's sort of like, like you were saying, like an Easter egg in one section of the timeline or a little Easter egg in, in a piece of artwork, but it's not all like in one section for the keeper to be able to easily reference. I feel like if, if I sat down and I wanted to run a Jane Austen novel, as a module or a campaign, this would be excellent. And I know there are people who damn it, why do you have to spoil my who love that <laughs> who love that style of game? And you know, they I could see a lot of players really digging their teeth into that that style of game and you know having a lot of fun with it. The problem for me was this there's just not enough Cthulhu, I guess, in the end. You know, it's like, if I want to run Pride and Prejudice as a campaign, this is an excellent resource. You know, besides a few little hints about, you know, here are some potential story hooks, uh, the Cthulhu part seems to be a little bit uh, AWOL. But, I mean, you think there are a lot of people that want to just run like a Jane Austen I don't know, maybe maybe I'm using my own personal biases on it, but you know, I found some of the social dynamic portion interesting, but not to the point where an entire session is spent at the ball and trying to court a lady and trying to make no social, you know, <laughs> errors when you're trying to address someone of a higher status than you and making sure you call everyone Mr. Mr. Smith. Uh you guys are describing like half of my sessions <laughs> oh, right? when I play this game. <laughs> But I think I appreciate the fact that Chaosium would print a book like this. And I think the the Call of Cthulhu system works really well for a type of game. If you want to run a game like this, compared to, say, if you took the, you know, the foundation of, say, D&D 5e and tried to run a, a game like this, you would quickly run into problems because that's not what D&D is built for. D&D is built to fight monsters and and kill stuff. Cthulhu's percentile dice system 
and the skill the skills that uh, the game offers and the uh, the way characters are built can lean in this direction i mean if you want to play a romantic story where the cthulhu elements are not front and center then i think the system allows you to do that and i perhaps chaosium sees a you know a market that there are groups out there that are looking for a system that can handle this sort of can handle that sort of game and i think they're you know chaosium smart to offer them and say well here you go here is a, a system if you want to run that type of game our system can can handle it for you oh and if you like adding some darker elements well we've got you covered on uh in that respect as well i do appreciate that the book takes into account that some keepers may have started with the beginner's box and reprints certain rules uh, that were not included in the beginner's box i think that's a really nice touch i I believe it's the luck rule is the one that is uh, reprinted because in the beginner's box i don't think you have the ability to spend luck points in order to change your percentile dice rolls and so that is they add that little part in and say like if you had the the keeper's guide or something like that then here's a here's that optional rule reprinted for you so i do like those those touches uh, that they've that they've done but i think that the mechanical changes that they made you know the the skill adjustments they made i think they're i mean there's obvious skills that they took out driving cars and using computers and stuff like that obviously don't exist and then some of the subtle changes they made like to i believe astronomy was one of the the skills that jumped out at me that has a slightly different use here Um, some of the the science skills were modified and uh, tweaked a little bit to to better represent the the times and I, I think hypnotism was replaced by mesmerism which mesmerism. i thought was i love that one which was pretty cool uh that was sort of to me like one of the f- one of the rare instances where it was just like oh here's a cthulhu thing i could latch on to you know it's you know rather than hypnotism there's mesmerism you know i i, I appreciate that they have gone through the effort to to tweak those skills and and, and it all makes sense, you know, when you sit down and read it, you're like, oh, okay, well, astronomy is being used in a slightly different way here. I understand that now. And, you know, there's no hypnotism and there's no cars, obviously, and stuff like that. So it, and then I believe one of the skills was artillery, which they suggested most, you know, if you're playing a male character who has any sort of military experience whatsoever, and most of them did at this time because it was the only job available to most of the uh, spare heirs that were around, you know, it's just like, okay, well, they should probably have artillery because they're, you know, they probably trained in that uh, aspect. So interesting touches like that. Yeah, there, I, I agree that, that that touch on the... Uh artillery skill because supposedly men are in short supply because of the war with napoleon so a lot of men went to war and uh, it's also why courtship is such a serious and important matter in the in the book um but back to skills i i'm glad you touched on a lot of the skills i really like mesmerism i think etiquette had a nice change um etiquette is almost required for social interaction and i love what they did with it they really went into detail about how to you know how to use it in this in this 
campaign. And then um, I really like the reassure skill. It's like a cool way to regain sanity since uh, a lot of the a lot of the skills that um, were more like mystical or whatever or you know that were psychological since they're not quite as advanced in those sciences, they had to take them away or, or change them. I like that they just have like the reassure skill. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. I also like what they did with credit rating to credit rating has always been one of those skills that seems pretty uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, nebulous nebulous exactly it's it's sort of like here's a number that sort of represents wealth and status and etc etc and i think they do a a really good job of sort of explaining how credit rating functions in this type of society and how uh, a lot of characters like in in traditional call of cthulhu your credit rating can go can fluctuate quite a bit. It's one of the few skills that can fluctuate depending on like if you make a massive purchase or something like that, the keeper might decide like your credit rating has gone down. But here it's it's hard capped at certain levels. So, you know, if you're a merchant or, you know, a, a business owner, there's a certain level that you can get to and no higher because above that is the gentry and then they have a you know, a cap as well. And above that is the aristocracy. And so it see when I read it, I'm like, oh, this makes a lot more sense than previous, my previous read throughs of credit rating where it's just like, okay, I understand this, you know, and how it functions a little bit better. Yeah. And it's nice that it, again, reinforces the, the themes of the era that they're trying to convey, you know, like it's nice that that all interacts nicely with with each other when you're using the reputation mechanic alongside these these changes to the credit rating and you know you've got the etiquette skill it really does make your character feel different than a 1920s investigator which i really like about this book What do you guys think about Terry Ford, the, t- the, the town as it's laid out, described, and so on and so forth? I know Man from Lang touched on it a bit. Yeah, I looked, I looked through the town, and uh, I mean, I appreciate the fact that they provide a setting for a keeper like myself, who, A, is already not particularly familiar with the, the Regency setting, and so having a ready-made community at my fingertips that I can... Um, if I need to change the name or place it somewhere different or, you know, I can tweak it as necessary, but at least I've got the, the bare bones there that I can work with. And so that having a, a good town is often the, the found, it makes for the foundation of a good, of a good campaign. And so I'm, I'm glad that they, they have it and pretty much, I think in every sort of major building, most of the major NPCs are described uh, with personality traits, descriptions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I particularly like the interaction between the owners of the the local pub, the uh, the husband and wife there. I thought that was a pretty, you know, they don't spend a lot of time talking about them, but in the little they do provide, there I think there's a lot of it. Really gives a good. Uh, f- foundation for the the keeper to work with and say if you're 
players ended up in that pub, you can have those NPCs interact and do so authentically, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. The NPCs don't need a ton of information, you know. Your players may or may not even interact with all of them, so you don't really need to spend a ton of time on them. As long as you've got kind of something you can quickly grab, it's it, it's so useful. And I really like how they, you know, they kind of quickly bullet point like description traits and some like various reasons why the investigators would want to talk to them in the first place so that you can very quickly just get the picture of what's going on with this person and move on. Yeah, I think in some of the older set, I remember the old setting books they used to have like for Arkham and Dunwich and Kingsport, like they they statted out so many of those NPCs with with stat blocks. And it's just like, who cares if they have like, fishing knowledge 10% or whatever like it's it's just never gonna come up I much prefer having like the like a quick little snippet of description traits relationship with other people in the building and you're good to go yeah I I agree with with both of you on that I love the quick descriptions like you mentioned earlier Nate the pictures of the NPCs for me as a as a keeper who likes to do voices, it helps me voice an NPC when I can visualize them. If I have a picture of the NPC, I immediately know what voice I want to use, how I want to portray their body, you know, set my body language, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. It really helps a lot. But in addition to the pictures that, like you said, the quick description, the traits, like for example, this guy, Captain John Stone, traits, stiff, honorable, dedicated, and brooding. Like you can get so much out of that for your role play, and it was only a few words. It goes so much further than writing paragraphs about the person. It's so, so good. And each NPC takes up half a page. You know, it's really nicely laid out, too. So it's not, like, in the way of other stuff. It's not like you have to, like, reference multiple pages most of the time to see what's going on with one character. And on the subject of the portraits themselves, you know, it's it's nice when you can hand something like that to your players. You know, and it, it's very convenient in the book to just like quickly like put your hand over the text and show them the image or, you know, if you have the PDF, you can print them out and cut them out individually without sacrificing any of the information that you need from it. Yeah. And uh, and like Man from Lang said that the town is laid out very nicely. They don't put they don't fit bloated up with fat like they just give you the necessary information. And each location, each major location is populated by the NPC that is, you know, in that particular location. So like a shopkeeper, though, then they'll give you the step, you know, the information for that shopkeeper within that shop. And it's also really nice that they give you like the adventure hooks that are relating to that NPC. So of the two adventures that are in the in the campaign book, it's so much easier to run the town if your NPC if your players are like, I'm going to the shop, you can easily pull up the shop little subsection see the npc know who's interacting with them and then immediately know what pertinent information that the players can learn from that npc it's just so simple but effective and something i don't see often at all with a lot of adventures yeah i i also really like how the town itself is not only really well fleshed out but it's also modular for the keeper as well you know like there are some empty manses on the outskirts of the town that the keeper can choose to fill out. There's, you know, there's an abandoned house in the middle of the town. There's, you know, an underground chamber that the 
the keeper can do whatever they want with. And I really like that aspect of it too, where it, it feels fleshed out, but it feels like you could easily interject the players without them kind of feeling like a bystander to what's going on. Yep. So with Terry Ford uh, being the main location that the book provides, it also provides two adventures, one short one and one longer one. And they both kind of take place in Terry Ford. So it all ties together to kind of get you started within the setting. Uh, We're not going to go into the adventures in detail right now. Just very briefly kind of summarize our our thoughts on them. But we will be doing uh, more in-depth reviews. We'll we'll give them the treatment we've given other adventures in the past. Um, But Nate, what, what did you think of the Long Corridor, the first short adventure? I mean, it starts off with the players going to a ball. So you you you're already immediately interested from right from the get go. <laughs> so it, yeah, it's it's a really good introduction introductory scenario to the setting. You know, we we start off with the social setting. You ease the players in, and and then of course something bad happens, and you got to go investigate. And we're not gonna not gonna spoil it, but I do quite like it, and I like how the two scenarios are intertwined with one another. You know, I'd like that there's there's a section in the long corridor that talks about, like, incorporating aspects of the second scenario into it and, like, foreshadowing the events that'll happen in the future. I really like that aspect of this book. How to easily tie them together. Yeah, one takes place, like, a year after the other one. But there's things that happen within the first one that you can throw in as kind of a... A nice little tie-in. I I thought the long corridor was really cool. Uh, it's a short adventure meant to be done in one or two sessions. They handled the complexities of the social dynamics really well by incorporating re- relevant mechanics with certain attempts like punching above your weight when gathering info, when dancing, playing cards, that kind of stuff. And um, I'm not like like you said, we're not going to spoil this or anything. But I I really like the way they incorporated it. It, it kind of helped me a lot in terms of seeing how they use these mechanics for the social interactions. And then it also helped me see how they incorporated the mythos and how they slowly, they start off with the ball and then they slowly started to give you a few breadcrumbs into seeing, oh, something isn't quite right here. And it's an interesting mystery and has a very dark, surprisingly very dark resolution. Again, no spoilers, but it's, very much more more um, reliant on social interaction for the majority of the adventure, which I thought was very well done. And then, then there's the other one that's really long, um, much longer, and a much more in-depth thing that can affect the town in a bigger way. The emptiness within. I mean, if, first off, the introductory piece of artwork that introduces the scenario is got to be one of the best pieces of artwork in all of Call of Cthulhu, that is just so cool. Yeah, this scenario, the second scenario, sees the investigators, um, the aftermath of the events of the first scenario. And while it it does allow you to run them in whatever order you choose, the book does recommend that you run them in the order that they're presented to you for, I think, for pretty obvious reasons that... You know, when, once you start to read the scenarios, you'll it'll make sense to you. Totally agree. Totally agree with you on that. It's uh, also pretty interesting. Uh, it starts off um, with just a few things that you notice in town. Uh, doesn't seem like anything mysterious, and then it kind of devolves into 
spreading, which is really cool. And then the the, the players also can <laughs> can fall under some uh, some of the effects of the things going on, which is pretty cool. Yeah, the emptiness within feels much more like a sandbox, and I, I think this scenario and I think the the one preceding it make for a really good campaign in in and of themselves because i i think you get at least like six sessions worth out of out of these two scenarios and then you could easily interject like one or two things of your own de- your own devising and then from there you've got like a half a year's worth of sessions so now that you mentioned that it's a sandbox you know i agree with you i'm i'm kind of now that you combine the two into the bigger picture of the campaign i like that they made the first one kind of condensed into one location pretty much and focus more on the newer things that this setting wants you to do which is the social dynamics of it it's a ball you're going to be interacting a lot more with people in high society people that are you know higher social standing servants that are of lower social standing and it'll help you as a keeper kind of help your your players understand those dynamics and kind of get more used to it and then it introduces the mystery and then you do your thing and then the bigger one now that it's a sandbox, I feel like you're going to be a little bit more experienced with handling those kind of interactions, and they're more spread out, a little bit thinner, and it definitely does a good job of introducing that with the more centralized scenario and then spreading it out into the bigger part of Terry Ford. So overall, what are, what are you guys' thoughts about Regency Cthulhu? Men from Land. Final thoughts. I uh, readily admit that uh, I am probably not the target audience for uh, for this particular uh, supplement. I'm really glad that it exists because I think there is uh, there are players who will really sink their teeth into the mechanics that are presented here, and they'll be able to play a Jane Austen style game and have the mechanics to support it. And I don't know if there are many other systems out there that do that. So I'm really glad that this publication exists. I don't think I'm the target audience for this because, you know, I I didn't really find uh, Jane Austen's books that interesting. I don't really watch shows about that era. But I think with a little bit more work, they might have been able to bridge that gap and pull somebody like me in if they had provided a little bit more information about the Cthulhu side of the equation. And I think what was missing for me, and I was thinking about this after I read the book, and it just felt like it spent so much time talking about the the social dynamics the way society operates, the relationships between men and women, which at this point in the Regency are pretty restrictive. Like essentially women sit at home and play the piano and learn French. That's about what they're they're limited to. But there's no sort of like, okay, here are like, what is the status of the occult at this time? Like, what are were there any secret societies? Were there any um, leading figures who were, you know, crazy science or or anything like that? Like there are snippets of that in the timeline, but 
it's just not enough for me to be like to seize on something and be going like, okay, well, this is a really cool thing and I'm going to explore it within the context of this, uh, like this Jane Austen society. That part was missing for me. I So I'm with you on a lot of what you said. The one thing I really wanted was a chapter or section helping keepers tie Lovecraftian horrors to the setting. The setting, this particular setting, is not one that people associate with horror, especially not cosmic horror. Like you've seen, you know, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, and you can kind of be like, oh, okay, that's... But cosmic horror, no one's really done that before that I that I can think of. It seems the unique quality of the setting is that the NPCs and characters' relationships and status are front and center, which adds a new level of complexity, and it can definitely take keepers out of their comfort zone. So I think it would have helped a lot to have some collective tips for running Cthulhu adventures within the setting, not just tips on how to run the setting itself. The two adventures do go a long way to helping people understand how to tie everything together. I, I think they did a great job with that. But some keepers are more logical than creative, and they're going to have a harder time figuring out how to pivot from the heavy social dynamics-based roleplay to the cosmic horror part of it. Now, that said, I think the setting is interesting and it's unique. I can see some people really enjoying the tonal change in roleplay when compared to like 1920s era Cthulhu games and that kind of stuff. Um, the complexity of the social structure and relationships between people is a huge draw and probably the biggest draw for this setting in particular. Each person has a different way that they're supposed to act with each other person that they interact with based on rumors, reputation, and status. All those play a major role, and they have mechanics for that, which is really cool. So I think, like you said, fans of Jane Austen, Downton Abbey, and The Crown and that kind of thing are really going to enjoy playing in the setting. But like you, Men from Lang, it's probably not for me either. (laughs) But... You know, if you like managing complex social dynamics and you want more of that in your Cthulhu game, this is going to be a great setting for that. I just wish we got a bit more help in properly merging the setting with Cosmic Horror. I wholeheartedly admit that I am probably the target audience for this book. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, there's something for everyone. I quite like that stuff, personally, and my group also really enjoys that aspect of Call of Cthulhu. And what can I say? I do enjoy a good Jane Austen read every once in a while. I'm a sucker for it. So, yeah, this is for me. I do wholeheartedly agree, though, that I do wish that there was more resources for the Keeper to to kind of kickstart more adventures. As well, I do think that Terry Ford and the two adventures are very good. I, I do wish that there was more to the book. And looking back at previous setting guides... There was more to those books. There was an extra, like, 40 to 50 pages in some of those other books. And, you know, some of those were admittedly similar content, but like you were saying, there was there was a more direct approach when trying to combine the two aspects of the historical setting and also the aspects of the cosmic horror and meshing those two things together. I sadly do miss in this book. But what is in the book is very good. And I th- I think this book would be better served as 
thinking about it more as a mini campaign book than thinking of it as like a true setting guide. Cause this really feels more like a love letter to Jane Austen than it does like a proper setting guide to playing Call of Cthulhu in the 18th century or in the, the 19th century, if that makes sense. And I, and I understand why. And I think it's because they're saving all that stuff for the two Cthulhu by Gaslight books that are coming out later this year. Huh. I didn't know that was coming out. <laughs> but that makes sense. Yeah, well, if you had listened to our interview with Mike Mason last month, you would have you would have known that. Mm, but, you know, I haven't gotten fine. to it yet. Well, shame on me. You'll have to give it a listen. <laughs> shame on me. <laughs> quick note, uh, the adventures do have quick tips on incorporating that adventure if you're playing Pulp Cthulhu variant. So that I wanted to make sure I mentioned that because that's also pretty cool that they threw that in there. I I'm glad that you mentioned that because I do regularly run Pulp Cthulhu. That is my main flavor of Call of Cthulhu is I, I do quite like the Indiana Jones style adventure. But I don't think that this book does a lot, if anything, for that setting. I just don't think that Pulp Cthulhu and Regency Cthulhu play nice with each other because I think they're, they're trying to do two different things. So I, I think if you want to play Pulp Cthulhu, Regency Cthulhu may not be what you're looking for, but I, I am glad that they at least considered it, you know, and they did throw in those tidbits for the keepers should they wish, you know, I, I could see maybe perhaps you, you use the pulp elements more for things like psychometry and hypnosis and, you know, those sorts of kind of mesmerist or more magical aspects of the mythos rather than, you know, I'm going to shoot everyone in the face with my gun and live forever kind of stuff. That can be synonymous with Pulp Cthulhu, but I like the book quite a bit. And I do, I do think that this release more so than others will be, you're either really, really dig it or you're really, you're really just going to pass on it. And I, I'm glad that it exists too, like Matt from Lang was saying earlier. Yeah, it's it's interesting that uh, I was just thinking about like what are some of the changes I would have made to it to to make it more appealing to to somebody like me who isn't you know isn't a Jane Austen fan. Which I think if you're a Jane Austen fan, there's a lot to to like in this book for you. But if you're not, then you're kind of left hanging a lot of the time. And I think I could have used a few more examples of how you're going, how the players can work around the very strict social structure of the time. Uh, they do. There is a, a snippet in there where they talk a little bit about the play test and how one of the characters was a say a footman for the other character, so he was of lower status than the other player at the table, but the the keeper recognized that. And so that footman had better relationships with, say, the servants in the building and stuff like that. I think more examples like that would to show you how you can actually play in the setting might have been more helpful. And I, and I hate to say it because I think I always ignore them. But, you know, for such a long time, inevitably, when 
they would release a new edition of D&D or, you know, whatever role-playing game system. They have that thing at the beginning where you've got the four players sitting down to play the game. And this is one of those instances where I might have actually read that part. So I had a better idea as to like how the players are going to play this and interact using this system. That's a really good point. I I agree. And they they do throw in little examples, but like you said, they're basically just references to Jane Austen novels, you know, and they, they throw in, which which can be nice, you know, if you're familiar with Jane Austen's work. But if you're not, then you're sort of left out to dry, which is disappointing in, in that regard. But yeah, I, I agree. Like the book is the material that is here is really good and it's really nicely edited and the art is great and all that. But the book ultimately at the end of the day really left me wanting more which i don't think is a bad thing but it feels it, it almost feels a little incomplete as as a resource for a keeper but it feels it feels right if you're if you plan to pick this book up and run through the two scenarios and kind of get your feet wet with the setting and then maybe maybe once you've run the two scenarios, then you kind of have an understanding of how all this stuff interconnects and plays out in, with your group, and that's when you can sort of go to a second resource that maybe has more details about how to present, like, a cult in this time era, or, or something along those lines. I, I'm with you. They did almost everything right. What they did right, they did really well. Um, it's just that one aspect... But I think that's going to wrap up this review. Uh, it's a really cool book, and I I understand why some people are not going to like this book. It is very, very hit or miss, but I'm a big fan, and I'm excited to, to finally get a physical copy when it releases on October 27th. Uh, I want to thank Chaosium again for giving us a review copy for us to record this episode so we could get this out in time and i also want to end the episode by saying that i'm pretty curious about this and i really want to run uh the first scenario the long corridor so if you're a patron of the show i'm gonna plan two sessions of this one for a european time and one for a pacific time and uh, australian time uh, sometime in december so we'll, we'll organize that time uh, via Patreon and via Discord. So if you're not a member of Patreon and you're curious about the setting and what it's all about, uh, you know, you can join and maybe hop in on a session of the game. But that's going to conclude this episode of the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcasts. I've been your host, Nate, lost in time and space, and I was joined with this evening. I am Man from Lang, host of the Whisper and Darkness YouTube channel. And I'm Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle End. Mm-hmm.